Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be looking today at the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. If you've been watching the news this last week and weeks before this, we're noticing stuff happening in our world that continues to point to the direction of biblical prophecy and how things are aligning and the, uh, if you want to call it the alignment of the nation with Gog and Magog and the alignment of the one world government and finances and things like that. If you're watching that, everything's starting to happen. It's convergence of things. And even in our own country, we're starting to see kind of this outright hostility towards anything Christian. In other countries, the Christians in Asia, China, they're all being persecuted by communistic governments, and they're underground today in worship. And then you see in the Middle East, you see the Islamic people's beheading Christians and taking their property, and we've heard that for the last several years. So the church is under extreme persecution, and we're starting to feel the soft or what we call legal persecution here in the United States, and eventually it turns into physical persecution. And so we're aware of outside of our country the physical persecution that's going on of the church, but we're starting to see how violent our culture is becoming without God. They've kicked God out of the schools, out of the colleges, out of the political life, out of the media. And notice what you're seeing once they do that. Have you noticed that our culture is becoming more and more violent? Our prisons are filled to capacity. They can't build them fast enough. In fact, there's so many prisoners, they have to release some of them. But notice in the public discourse the lack of civility. Have you noticed this? That the people in Hollywood, the people in the news, even the newscasters are so hateful towards anything Christian that they're willing to get physically violent against it. We saw one of the guys in Congress get shot by a leftist, and people on the news applauded this. People in the media applauded this. And I've heard professors say, kill them all. What kind of talk is that? Then you see comedians and actors like Johnny Depp, and they're holding severed heads like that Kathy Griffin of Donald Trump, or you got Johnny Depp saying he'd like to see an actor assassinate the president. Who talks like that? The ungodly do. That's who talks like that. And see, when you're without God, not only will you get into immorality, but you'll become violent. If you look in the Old Testament, the most violent of places are the most ungodliest of places, like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They became violent and sexually deviant. And we're seeing now in our country, things are starting to ramp up. These people are not civil anymore. They're not just going to let it lie. They're going to attack and get hostile towards you and I as Christians. It's coming. What they're doing to Christians in the Middle East and in China is coming here. You see what's happening in Europe. Germany and other countries in Europe are monitoring people's social networks to see if they say anything hateful towards gays and lesbians or anything hateful towards Islam. And if you do, we'll raid your house. It's now legal in Germany for them to raid your house. 
if they see anything on your Facebook or social media accounts. They've got in collusion with Facebook and Google to do these things, to do surveillance on people. That's coming here eventually. So what you say on your social media is going to be used against you. Perhaps one day they will raid your house. I don't know. That experience of having your house raided is nothing like what Christians are experiencing in the Middle East when the ISIS raids their house and takes everything they have or threatens them to leave or what's happening in China. Yeah, your personal property might be challenged at some point in time. You'll see in this passage, it's the church of Smyrna. It's the persecuted church. And it's, I think, apropos for what we're studying right now for the time period we live in because things are not going to get better for us as believers. And I hate to tell you that. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be a realist. It's not going to get easier. It will be tougher to be a Christian in the days ahead, and this passage is there to prepare us for that. You're going to be asked to sacrifice in some way or some form or fashion in some way of in the terms of persecution. You're going to have to take something somewhere. That might be losing a job. That might be losing a business. That might be losing your career and taking a more menial job. I don't know. But it happened to them in the first century, and it's happening now. Do you really think in our culture, if you're a born-again believer and you voice your opinion on all the biblical issues, you think you're really going to rise to the top in any industry? You think you're going to be in the top in politics or in education if you hold Christian values? You think you're going to be the CEO of a company when your company is doing tolerance training for gays and lesbians? And you're as a Christian is going to be put that, you're going to be held down. You're not going to rise. So you're not only going to get hit with soft persecution, but you're going to be hit with economic persecution. If you think you're, if you're going to be a doctor and a Christian doctor, and they go to socialized health care like they're doing now, do you think you're going to rise anything above that level if you're against abortion or transgenderism? having a sex change or something like that? You think you're going to really rise to the top because of that attitude? You're not. You're going to be held down. So the point I think we're going to see with this passage is we're going to see a message from Jesus to his church, the persecuted church, those believers who are suffering under persecution for what they stand for, as a message to prepare us for what we're going to get ready to encounter in our culture. It's not going to get better. The schools are not going to get better. The academics are not going to get better. The politics are not going to get better. The swamp in Washington, D.C. is not going to get better. It's the way of prophecy. Everything is heading toward a certain direction. But here's the deal. What you're going to learn is suffering has redemptive value. And he allows his people in the church to go through it. Now, let me make a note here about the suffering that he's talking about. This is not suffering just from the general fall of man, where people are sick or they're just having a hard time in life and going through trials. That's not the suffering he's talking about in this context. The context has to do with suffering for the faith, suffering for Jesus. Now, a lot of Christians spiritualize all suffering as suffering for Jesus, but that's not. That's not. Having a bad leg, having arthritis is not suffering for Jesus, even though you may think it is. But suffering for Jesus means that you're taking a stand for Christ in some area of your life, and you're getting a pushback for it. Whatever career you're in, whether it's your family, that's the context of what we're talking about. Let me make another note before we jump in. 
In understanding the Smyrna church, the persecuted church, this is the second church after Ephesus. We interpret this, that these churches were literal churches in history, that they also represent parts of the church throughout all of church history, because there's promises made that are more global than just to that local congregation. And then we also see this on a continuum in the book of Revelation in chronological order. So what you want to see in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches laid out, and the literal, historical, prophetic perspective is these churches represent epochs that are building off each other and eras during the church. So the church ends in the Laodicean period. So the Smyrna period is a period of time as well. And you'll see when we look at history, it matches exactly with that. I mean, it's not exact, but I mean, it matches with that epoch or era of time, give or take a couple of years. And then we see on the level of a personal application. So there's almost like four ways to apply this passage. And so I want you to understand that before we go into that. The first principle we learn about the persecuted church as we dive into this is this. We have to understand what the name means. Smyrna means myrrh. And it dominated the era of Roman persecution. And again, this is a rough estimate of 8100 to 313. And I'll explain that in just a bit. But what we're trying to, to look at is the names of the churches have significance. This is why Jesus picked out these seven churches, because the name has significance. Myrrh. What's the idea of myrrh? Myrrh was a very expensive product that was produced by a tree in the area in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And the thing about it is it was used for embalming. It was an embalming agent, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But let's look at the first passage in verse 8, and it says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The idea, and I talked about this a couple weeks back about the angel, is, it is referring to the angel that is over that church. We have an angel that watches our church. They're used to as a witness. They're used to testify about what's going on in the congregation. And the angel is used to discipline the believers in that church when they disobey. And that's how the angel relates. This angel relates to the church of Smyrna. And so the message is to him, Jesus is filling in the angel of that church about what's going on. There will be no condemnation for this church because it's the suffering church. I have some pictures I want you to see of Smyrna and kind of the idea of myrrh. This is the tree that myrrh grows on. It's a small shrub, but this tree produces this gum resin that comes from it. And I think I have a picture of it, of the gum resin. So it pops out this gum resin. It's very rare, and they use this resin, and they dry it, and, it turn, and they make it into myrrh. Well, when you use myrrh, you have to crush it in order for the fragrance to be released. So in order to use it, it has to be crushed. So you can see the connection with a suffering church being crushed. That's the picture of a suffering church being crushed or believers being crushed under the weight of persecution. But then what comes out of the believer? Something fragrant that God likes. It produces something spiritual in the person. So myrrh gives off that fragrance. Again, myrrh was used as uh, embalming fluids. Remember, what did the wise men give Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was a picture of those wise men that Daniel had trained over there in Babylon years and years ago. They had told him that when Messiah comes, he's going to die. They knew that, so they gave him, as a gift at his birth, embalming fluid. 
And of course, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have used myrrh and aloes in the entombment of our Lord and wrapped his body with linen and put the myrrh and the aloes over the encasement of his body. So that would have been used. An interesting note, I read this this week, very interesting. In about the second coming of Messiah, Isaiah talks about the second coming, and they give gifts to Messiah when he comes back, Israel does, and they give him gold and frankincense, but they don't give him myrrh. Isn't that interesting? Because he's already died and come back to life. He's not going to come back to die again. So isn't it interesting? Gold and frankincense are given to him, but not myrrh. Here's another picture of some dried myrrh. You can see it there. And it's kind of what it looks like, like a rock. And then they make it into a liquid, and you can get myrrh pretty much anywhere. And it kind of, the way myrrh smells, it kind of smells like baby powder. They sometimes mix it with frankincense. It smells like a baby powder type of thing. Anyway, the church over there in, is in Smyrna, and this is, this is Turkey. Smyrna is where that red god is, and it was on the coastal line uh, of the Aegean Sea, and so it was a port city, very, very populous, very rich because of the selling of myrrh. This is where they sold myrrh a lot, and so it was very rich community. Uh, the church was actually was poor because it got cut off from the community. Let's go to some other pictures I think we have here. The ancient shoreline is right there in the yellow. You can see the ancient harbor where it used to be. It's called Izmir in Turkey today, if you go there. So if you go on the, the journeys of Paul, they'll probably stop at the seven churches, and you'll get to see this one because it's right off the harbor. A lot of things going on in this church. Let's go to the next picture. This is the arena that they had, amphitheater. I'll make mention later today about Polycarp. He was the pastor that took over Smyrna, and he was martyred in this general area close to the arena. And again, very populous, about 200,000 citizens at the time of this writing of the church. Let's go to the next picture. I think we have a few more. You can see some of the archaeological remains of Smyrna there in Turkey. Let's go to the next one. You can see some of the, a lot of the, the Roman architecture. This again was a free city. It was one of the prized jewels of Rome along with Ephesus because of its wealth. Let's go to the next one. And there's a couple columns and stuff of the leftover remains of Smyrna. Very wealthy, but the church wasn't. So, very beautiful city. You can see it even in the archaeological remains, but the church was very poor. So, let's go to point number two. So, we got the understanding of the name. It means myrrh. It means it's related to embalming fluids, relating to death and persecution. So we get the picture there. Now we come to point number two, and it's, it's Jesus is described as the eternal God who identifies with his people in their persecution. So now we get into more of the text. These things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now that statement is obviously showing you that Messiah is the God-man. He is saying, I'm the first and the last, I'm the eternal God, but yet I died. Well, how does the eternal God die? Because the eternal God is spirit. He cannot die. He dies because it's telling you about the incarnation, that I became a man, and as a man, I could have died. And that's what he did, and he came back to life. It's obviously referring to the resurrection. And so it's saying that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, but he's also became a man in order to die for us. Now, you got that, and you understand that, but here's the point. The principle is this. Jesus is trying to tell the persecuted church, I identify with you. I became one of you, and I suffered like you're suffering, and I died for you, so I understand your pain. I understand what you're going through. See, that's very, very important. 
Most people don't realize this, but when someone is in grief and suffering, and especially Christians, they already know the theological basis for suffering. They understand they're in a fallen world. But even when you're in there and you're talking to someone that's lost a loved one or anything like that, what you'll find what helps people in their grief is that you can identify with them and that their God, Jesus Christ, can identify with them. That actually brings more comfort than you just quoting, all things work together for the good of those who are called and love God. That really doesn't go over well when someone has lost a loved one right in front of you. What goes over well is Jesus knows your pain. That goes over well. And then the theology comes later in the grief process. But in the, the, the first initial stance is, you want to know, does my God care that I'm in pain? That's what he's trying to say. That's the message. And Jesus identifies with this pain. Now, I can tell you that, but he showed this all through the Bible that he will identify with us and our cursing of the fall. Do you remember in Genesis, the judgment that came upon Adam and Eve, cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles. Remember that? It will produce for you. I want you to notice the theme of thorns and thistles. The theme of thorns is carried all the way through the Bible. At that point in Genesis, that's their condemnation. But what you'll see very early on is that God will start identifying with the suffering of his people. How so? Do you remember the burning bush? Everybody knows about the burning bush in front of Moses, don't they? Your translation doesn't translate it that accurately. You just think it was a bush, don't you? The actual Hebrew is a sena. It means a thorny bush. God appeared in a thorny bush that wasn't consumed. You tell me what God mes God's message to Moses and Israel was. I know you're under a curse, and I'm actually going to identify myself with you in that curse by appearing in a cursed bush, a thorny bush. It harkens back to Genesis. God was already identifying. I'm going to do something for you, Israel. I'm going to identify in your pain. Now think about this. The thorny bush, and then God told Moses, make the tabernacle out of acacia wood. Now, if you read your Bible in English, you won't pick up on what is an acacia tree. You have to go to Israel to know what an acacia tree is. And when you see an acacia tree, you're going to freak out because it's full of thorns. The whole tree is thorns. I broke off a little piece when I was in Israel, and I took it back with me. This thing has thorns four or five times the size of a rosebush thorn. And they're long, and they're like a needle. That was the wood the tabernacle was to be made out of, a thorny wood tree. God identifying with his people. And then with Joshua going into the promised land, before they went in, he settled the Israelites in a place called Abel Shittim. Abel Shittim. It's called the meadow of the acacia or the field 
of thorns. Again, identifying. Now, you see the theme of thorns. God's using thorns. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then we get to the New Testament. What did they put on Jesus' head? Crown of thorns. A crown symbolizing a king. But the crown, the thorn, symbolizes back to the curse of Genesis. I will be your king of those who are cursed. I will be your king, and I will identify with you, and I will actually take your curse on me and pay your penalty. You see the identification with the thorns with God. And that's his message to the the church in Smyrna is, I understand your pain, and I'm with you. I was there. I suffered more than the cumulative suffering you could ever suffer So I know how you feel. Now, this is extremely important. This is the theological point I want you to get because this is the connection that God is going to have with us in our pain because a lot of you are suffering right now, a lot of pain. Jesus is called our sympathetic high priest. That's just not a title. It's because of what his actions are for us. A lot of people don't pick up on that. It's not just simply Jesus says, I feel sorry for you when you're hurting. He actually empathizes with us. He feels our pain. And you don't have to be afraid to take that pain to him. He feels it. Now, a demonstration of him feeling our pain was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember, they called him over. He delayed himself four days. He allowed Lazarus to die. You remember that. And the shortest verse in the Bible, it says Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He knew right then and there he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He could have told him, guys, you know, you don't need to be sorrowful. I'm going to raise him up right now. Be happy right now. Be glad I'm going to raise him up. He didn't do that, did he? He just simply cried. And it's a deep, the way that the Greek is, it's a deep pain. He feels as God. The emotion of all those people suffering, the emotion of his friend dying, he felt the pain. And in that instance, when it says Jesus wept, it shows you and I, our God knows our pain. And that gives us the strength to know I can keep moving on. I can keep taking more. My God is with me. And he identifies with me. But let me add one more thing to this. A lot of people fail to realize. Understanding that Jesus can connect to us in our pain gives us that strength, but a lot of people don't get the full measure. What do you mean by this? Well, a lot of people that get into pain and their life is hurting them. They're getting persecuted or there's illness or whatever. What the devil will try to do is make you start isolating And pulling away from everybody in your pain. Because when you're in pain, you don't want anyone around. Don't do that. If you have the mentality, well, in my pain, it's just me and Jesus, and I don't need anyone else. Just get away from me. It's just me and Jesus. You're missing out on something. You're half right. Yes, it is you and Jesus, but he created something that you're supposed to connect to. His body, 
And what happens is people are in deep, deep pain or persecution. They connect on a vertical level, but they will not connect on the horizontal level, and it leaves them isolated and detached. And they suffer more, and they can't figure out, why do I keep not feeling supported? Why do I feel that I'm alone in all this? It's because they don't have the body of Christ surrounding them, encouraging them, praying for them, connecting to them, talking to them. For goodness sake, if we could do this alone without the body of Christ that he created, why did he create it? And so what ends up happening, and this is happening in Americana, this doesn't happen in China. This doesn't happen in the Middle East. They're under persecution. They stick tight together. They truly know what it is to be a family. But in America, the megachurch model has taught us to all be independent, all be detached, come to church, leave, and never know anybody, never connect anybody. So what happens? Inevitably, pain starts happening to us, and we don't know who to reach out to. And so people are stuck in a pain And they're not getting the help they need because they can't connect to the body of Christ. So when he says, I'm with you, he's with us truly in our vertical relationship, but he's also with us in our horizontal relationship. The best thing to do when you're in pain is to connect to other believers and Jesus. Don't leave the the believers out. You must incorporate them into your network of support. You've got to have people that understand you. You've got to have people that empathize with you, that sympathize with you. Because if you don't, you'll feel detached. You'll feel isolated. And guess what happens in isolation? The devil cuts you off and he works his magic on you and goofs you up. You will have distorted thoughts. You will have distortions about God and about yourselves and about reality. And it'll it'll mess you up. That's what he's trying to say about this connection. It's extremely important. It's not enough for you just to have your spouse and the dog. It's just not enough. Point number three. Jesus commends the church for having patience in their sufferings for enduring blasphemy. Now, this idea of blasphemy is what the culture is saying to them as far as slandering them, lying about them for being Christians, for taking their stand. Verse nine says this, I know. Now, he doesn't just know about them. He knows the circumstances that they're involved in inside and out. Your works, I know what you're doing, and I know the tribulation. Now, here's the connection to the myrrh. The word tribulation in the Greek means a crushing feeling, pushing down on the believer the pressure that believer is feeling. I know the tribulation. If you're under extreme pain, it, it'll actually, you start feeling it in your chest. You actually physically start feeling crushed Your chest feels like you're going to have a heart attack a lot of times. You ever felt that? That's that crushing stress of pain and and circumstances of life and even persecution that people start feeling. And that's what he uses that word. That's the connection to the myrrh. What happens to the myrrh? You crush it in order to have the aroma come out of it. He goes, I know the crushing feeling that you have. And poverty This poverty word is not spiritual poverty. This actually has to do with monetary poverty. This means absolute poverty, complete destitution. Now, there's something here I want you to learn. This poverty, why are they poor? Because they're in one of the richest cities in Asia. But they're poor. They're destitute. They can hardly survive in this rich city. 
Do you know why? It has to do with slander. He connected it to the slander that's happening. Now, they're being lied about. I'll talk a little bit about the slander in just a second. But they're being lied about, and because people start thinking about them because of the lies, they're not able to hold well-paying jobs in the city. They've been cut off. They've been called all kinds of things, guys. If you do some research about this slander, they were accused of having cannibalism feasts. They were accused of orgies because they called their potlucks love feasts. What they would do when they went to church is they'd have a potluck, and then they would observe church. And they did it because they did it on Sunday night. So they would eat, have church, celebrate the Lord's Supper. But they would call them love feasts. Well, they used that against them. They said, ah, they're having a bunch of wild orgies, man. That's, they're all sexual deviants. And believe it or not, they were actually called atheists. They accused the believers during that day of being atheists. Do you know why? Because they would not worship the pagan gods, nor would they worship Caesar. So they called them atheists, called them haters. By the way, I found a quote a long time ago, and I showed it to you one time, and it said, these Christians hate all people. I want to say that's what they're saying about us now. We're racists. We're bigots, right? We hate the LGBT community, we hate the Muslims, we hate this, we hate that. That's all that they say. That's the slander. That's what these guys were getting. So what ended up happening is, because of their views of being a Christian, they were held down in their occupations. In fact, they lost their jobs. The Jews were cut off, and I'll explain that in just a bit. They were cut off from their culture. If you were a Roman citizen, you were cut off from the Roman society. They wouldn't do trades with you. They wouldn't deal with you. And so they lost their jobs. I find it interesting, the same thing's going to happen to you and I if it's not already happening. As the hatred towards Christianity picks up here in America, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, what will happen is you will not be able to hold high-ranking jobs in society. I'll give you an example. They're already setting this up. Common Core, what they're instituting in the schools, is of the devil. There's no doubt about that. But there's an element in Common Core that a lot of people don't realize. It's called tracking. The Europeans do tracking a long time. And what they do is they track their kids and they segue kids to a certain thing and segue other kids to a certain thing. It's very well known in European education to track kids. But when you track a kid, it limits what kind of occupations they're going to have. Built into the Common Core is tests that not only test for math and reading and language skills, but test... I guess the morality, the socialization of the child. Does that make sense? So the child would be tested on what they think about gay marriage, what they think about other religions, what they think about globalism, what they think about the fake global warming thing. And the way the system is designed, if the kid marks the wrong answer, he's moved and tracked to lower-paying jobs. The kind of kid that you and I are raising, Christian kids, eventually will not be allowed to go to college if they hold those views. So you will not be able to get a college education, or there'll be some type of entry level to where they have to somehow renounce principles of Christianity before they go to a college or university or private school or whatever it is. That will prevent their economic opportunities. That's what's built into Common Core is tracking but it eventually affects the pockets. Now, think about this. I was talking to a lawyer friend of mine, and 
Everybody knows the American Bar Association is as liberal as all get out. It's leftist. And he's saying, you cannot be a Christian lawyer anymore. It's just not going to even be possible because of they're so leftist. This is happening in the medical community. This is happening all over. Whatever industry you're in, I want you to think about it. If you're a teacher, you know what I'm talking about. It is getting leftist. It's getting crazy. If you're a Christian teacher, you're trying to survive in this, but eventually they're going to push you to a wall. It's coming. And that's what happened to these guys. They started losing their their ability to make money, and they became destitute. So one of the ways Satan gets at us is he reduces our ability to make money. You're held down. So we bring all that to play into this. Well, how am I supposed to respond? Look what Jesus says. He says, but you are rich. I know you've lost the ability to make money. I know you're going to be put at a certain economic level, but in my eyes, you're rich. Because why? You're rich spiritually. Now, there's a thing I want to bring out here about this. Some of the persecution is optional. There's a lot of times in the Middle East that persecution is not optional. It's just coming on them, and it just comes, right? And they can't do anything about it. ISIS comes in, get out of your house, or we're taking, you, taking everything over, and we're going to kill you. So we're giving you one day to leave. Okay, that's forced persecution. There's a lot of that going on. But a lot of persecution people don't realize is optional. What do you mean? Well, let's say you're worldly, and you don't want to have your economic basis held back. So what would I do to play the game? It's real simple, and it's going on right now. Churches do it. It's called the sin of silence. I'm just not going to open my mouth. I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah, my company's doing X, Y, and Z, and it's jacked up, and they're doing all this crazy stuff, but I ain't going to say anything because I don't want to lose my job. Oh, I see. See, persecution comes because someone is proclaiming truth in the environment that they're in, and then people don't like it, and they push back on it. So what's happening with the churches and Christians today in America, the sin of silence is rampant because no one wants to make waves, and especially no one wants to have a job loss. And so they stay silent when they should be saying something at least. The sin of silence is one of the most deadliest things because it is from pain avoidance. It's the believer not wanting to experience any kind of pain, any kind of thing that they have to suffer, so they avoid it, and the way they avoid it is, I'm not going to say anything. Look, let me talk to you as a pastor. We're pretty open here at Rock Harbor. We call things out. We name things. Look at the last two speakers we had. For goodness sake. We're not afraid, but you know what it does? It thins out the crowds. I already know people are going to get ticked off and leave. I already know that. They're going to leave. If I wanted to build a bigger church, I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't come against anything. I would just give a nice little sermon, make you feel good, and our numbers would double overnight if I just made people feel comfortable. But that's not what God called me to do, and that's not what you want either. But a lot of churches have went this way. I had lunch with Philip Lee, and we just had him a couple weeks ago, trying to help people get out of gay and lesbian lifestyle. And God bless him for the work he's doing. But again, I sat down with lunch, and I said, how's things going? We had lunch for about six months. 
after he preached, and he goes, it's the same thing. It's getting worse, Brandon. He goes, none of the churches here in Kern County want to talk about the subject of the gay and lesbian issue, the transgender issue. He goes, you don't hear anything from a pulpit. And I said, Phil, what do you think they're afraid of? He goes, why do you ask questions? You already know the answer. They're afraid, aren't they? He goes, yeah. He goes, they don't want to lose their nickels and noses. They're afraid, so they keep silent. They shut their mouth. So they shut their mouth and do the sin of silence to avoid being persecuted. That's what it comes down to. These Christians wouldn't shut up. They were saying, that's wrong, and this is right, and they were calling things out, and they were getting hammered for it, totally hammered. In 90 AD, I want you to know this, because this early church, the early church is Jewish. I want you to know that. It didn't become primarily Gentile until late into the first century and the second century. It's primarily Jewish. About 90 AD, this before John wrote this book, and this, this came out all in all the churches in Asia, the Jews put out an edict called the Curse of Menim, M-I-N-I-M, Menim, the Curse of Menim. And this was what happened. Remember, the early church is all Jewish. A few Gentiles sprinkled here and there. Anyway, the, the, this edict was put out, and it said... No Jew who calls himself a Christian may enter a synagogue ever again. It forbade all Jews who, were, who accepted Jesus as Messiah into the synagogue. A permanent ban. Huh. You know what that does? That means they're cut off from their culture. And it's like, oh, okay, no, what's the big deal? No, 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 you, you don't understand. That means they lose it all. No one's going to do business with them from the Jewish culture. That's who they did business with. No one's doing business with them. And by the way, the Romans included this as well, because the edict of Menim to the Roman government told the Roman government, these Christians are not a subsect of Judaism. They're an illegal religion, and they do not have the legal right to operate. What Rome did is it allowed older religions to still function. They actually allowed the Jews to still function under the Roman regime. But anything new was put down. So the Edict of Menem told the Romans, they're not of us. We're banning them. And so Rome turned around and said, we're banning them too. Completely cut off from culture because of acceptance of Messiah. Completely cut off with the Edict of Menem. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. I'll give you another example. This happened before the Edict of Menem. You remember Nicodemus? You know Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus approached the Lord in his first, first year of ministry. Nicodemus was very wealthy. He was a ruler in Israel. A lot of money, by the way. Histor history tells us that Nicodemus was a very wealthy man. You know he talked about the Lord in John chapter 3, talking about salvation, being born again. And Nicodemus was having a very difficult time with this. It took Nicodemus almost three and a half years to finally get it, but he did. He finally realized who Jesus was. He understood now what born again meant. He expresses his faith in Messiah by accompanying Joseph of Arimathea to bury our Lord's body. Remember that? They were the two that provided everything for him. The minute Nicodemus did that publicly, do you know what happened to him? He got completely cut off cut off from everybody, cut off from society, from the Israelite society. No one did business with him. By the time Nicodemus dies, 
He dies with no money. He had lost everything by simply doing the act of burying our Lord and identifying as a Christian. That's how serious it was back then. But that's how serious it is today. We're going to get slandered, and you're just going to have to take it on the chin. But the harder part is you're going to have to be willing to take it economically. That's where it's going to hit you. It's going to hit you in the pocketbooks. I mean, think about what they're saying about us today. I mean, really think about this. Do you realize what they're saying? They say we're anti-new. Have you heard that? You might not have. What it means is we reject the new. We reject unprovable things. Like, for instance, this French president, Emmanuel Marcon, boy wonder. He's on the cover of a magazine saying he's the savior of Europe. Have you seen this? This guy's married, married his teacher. Like she's like 23 years older than him. And he has no background. He came out of nowhere. He has a lot of wealth, and he rises to the top. Almost like the Antichrist. Maybe it's a picture or a foreshadowing of how the Antichrist will rise out of nowhere. That's how Daniel predicted it. I'm not saying he's the Antichrist. I'm just saying the Europeans accept this dude who has no track record, and they think he's the savior of the world. It sounds like our previous president. No track record, no background. He's just new, and he's going to bring change. And what you saw happen in America is now happening with the Europeans, with this guy, Marcon. Watch him. I find that interesting. But this is what they say against us. You Christians worship these European white males. We're done with the old. Bring in the new. You know what that's an attack on? That's actually demonic. Demonics have actually said that through Alice Bailey and other people. That we've, the demons are saying we've got to get rid of the old. Do you know what the old is? It's the Bible. It's biblical Christianity. We've got to get rid of the old. Bring in the new world order, the new age. They'll also call us anti-egalitarian. Because you, Brandon, don't believe a woman should go into a man's bathroom. Gosh, what an anti-egalitarian person you are. What an anti-intellectual we are. You believe that this God that you worship created things in six days. I'm shocked you didn't do it in one. But yeah, I believe in a six-day creation. You're anti-intellectual and you're anti-progress too. I don't know if you realize that because you're not on board with transgenderism. You're not on board with national, uh, sorry, globalism. You're for more of national sovereignty. You're not a globalist. (laughs) You're anti-progress, man. Get out of our way. You're anti-compassion too, you Christians. You disagree with universal health care. You'd push grandma right off the cliff, wouldn't you? You just hate people, don't you? You're anti-science. You don't believe in our made-up faux climate change, do you? You're anti-science, anti-minority, aren't you? You don't like Islamic refugees because you're a xenophobe, aren't you? You're anti-people. You're a hater. You're an extremist. Because you believe in the rule of law, you Christians, you have no compassion. You believe government should be small, but, but that will render you an extremist now on the FBI watch list. Don't you know that? You believe in God we trust. Well, that's a religious bigotry in my book, they say. And you believe in our nation's motto, e pluribus unum, out of many one. But you're a racist because you don't believe in 
multiculturalism. See, these leftists are slandering you and I, making stuff up, creating this villainy. And this is why he says, Jesus says in the Scriptures, I know the blasphemy or the lies of those who say they are Jews but are a synagogue of Satan. This is why he says this. To that church in history, what was happening, they were getting persecuted from the Jews, right? This is where the Edict of Menem came from. But let's put this in our modern day. If you can use the principle, what he is saying is the leftists, the ungodly, the God-haters in this world are saying they're the ones who are moral and godly and holy, and they're saying that we're the ones that are messed up. That's how you put it in our modern day. And that's what they're saying, right? You're the hater. You're the bigot. You're this. You're that. You're the racist. But Jesus is telling you and I and told them, I know what they're saying about you. They're lying. They speak their father's native language. They worship the devil, and they're going to speak his language. They lie about you. But all they are is a synagogue of Satan. They're being controlled by him. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they're saying what they're saying. It's okay. I understand, he says, what they're saying. They're lying about you. We're the deplorables, right? So what's the application before we move on? You're going to get slandered. You're going to get crushed. It's going to happen. The question is, what is going to come out of you when you are? See, myrrh, when it's crushed, it produces a fragrance that lights up the whole room. You can smell it several feet away. It just permeates the entire room once it's crushed. The question that you and I are going to have is, what will come out of us when someone starts lying about us from the world, saying, you're nothing but a racist, you're nothing but a bigot? Will we choose the option of, well, I'm just going to stay silent, I don't want to make waves, I don't want to say anything? Or will we choose to speak the truth in love and with respect and with salt and grace, but we'll be tough enough and willing and strong enough to tell it as it is? And then the question will be, how will you react when they try to be hostile towards you, call you a name? Will you give off a fragrance? Or will something else come out of you? Let me point out what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 of the possibilities of what can come out of us when we are crushed. You have two things that can come out of you. The first thing, now the works of the flesh are evident. This is the first category that can come out of you when you're crushed. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So some Christians, when they're crushed, that flesh comes out. But other Christians, if they react well to the crushing... This is what comes out. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Ask yourself, when you're crushed, is it the one category of the flesh or is it the category of the fruit of the Spirit? That's what you know will happen. That's when you'll know if you've turned into myrrh, so to speak, if that makes sense. Principle four. Jesus exhorts individuals not to fear persecution, but to prepare for it. What? Are you serious? See, you and I, what we're looking for is a relief. 
I need relief from this pain. I'm tired of this. I don't want to keep fighting this. I don't want to keep dealing with this at work. I don't want to keep dealing with this in my marriage. I don't want to keep dealing with this in my family, whatever it is. You know what? You just name the thorn in your side, right? Just name it. And Jesus is telling you and I, prepare yourself. It's going to get worse. What? I was hoping you were going to say, hey, just a few more days and we're done, all right? What? Yeah. Think about it. And I've said this before. As far as the terms of persecution, do you really think things in America are going to get better, more favorable towards Christians? So the message is so apropos to us. Jesus is saying, don't think your country is going to get better. You're not going back to 1950. You're not going back to prayer in your schools. You're not going back to, to them reverencing me, even in the churches. No, no, no. It's going to get worse, so buckle up. Strap it on. Let's go. That's what he's saying. Whoa. You mean the good old days are over? And there never was any good old days. Buckle up, he is saying, church. It's going to be a rough ride, but I'm with you. Look in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. There's the pronouncement of future suffering. And this idea of fear is, it's a command. Fear nothing, small or great. Fear nothing. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, he identifies Satan as what's behind all of this. What's behind what's happening at your job? What's behind our politics? What's behind all the globalism? What's behind the infiltration of apostasy into the church? It's the devil. The devil has infiltrated it. And he's about to throw some of you into prison. This idea that they did actually go to prison because under, under Roman persecution, a lot of them went to prison. A lot of them were thrown to the animals and things like that. So this actually did happen. But why? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Why would you allow your church, the ones who serve you, to be persecuted like this? That you may be tested. That's why, Brandon. Well, what's this? What, what do you mean? It's not that God needs to know how we're doing. It's so that we will know where we're at spiritually. He's basically telling you and I, I'm about to take away all crutches. All crutches of network of support that you have propped up in your life, Brandon, I am taking away. I'm stripping you of all of that because I want it to be you and I. And the problem is, Brandon, you put too many things in your life to aid you as a crutch. And they're a substitute for me, and I don't want them in your life. So I'm going to test you to show you really what you're leaning on, to show you your spiritual walk is not where it needs to be. And I'm going to force you to lean on me. And I might, Brandon, have to put you on your back to teach you to lean on me. That's why. That's why it's not going to get easier. I have to teach you a lesson. Not because I want to punish you. I'm not trying to condemn you, Jesus is saying. I'm trying to help you. I want you to become more like me. I want you to be free of the sin in your life. But you will not embrace the suffering, will you, Brandon? See, that's the message he gives to us. He sometimes has to wake me up, but that's the problem. We're in pain avoidance mode. I want to live an easy life. And Jesus is saying it's not going to be easy. So we try to manipulate the circumstances of our life to avoid pain. 
I don't want to go there, I don't want to go there. And all we're doing is avoiding the very thing that can help us grow. If you want to overcome sin, you have to suffer. Not not, not willy-nilly. There has to be redemptive suffering, redemptive for Christ. And that kind of suffering is difficult. It's very difficult. But he puts Christians in that. And he says, and you will have tribulation 10 days. I'll explain this for a little bit. But in practice, the 10 days means a period of time. 10 is a, 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 a Hebrew understanding of one unit consisting of intervals in the middle of it. So like the Ten Commandments, all right? It's one unit, but it's intervals of laws in there. Remember in the tribulation, in the future, Jesus said, had that time not got cut short, no flesh would survive. So he's saying, yeah, expect more coming your way, but remember this. I put a time limit on it. I'm going to put an end to it one day. It's not going to go on perpetually for all your life, but I'm going to put an end on it until you learn that lesson, until you understand the crutches that have been removed from you. That's what it is. Just some historical notes. When you look at this interpretation of the church in Smyrna, there were 10 official Roman persecutions in this era. And that's what a lot of scholars believe the reference to the 10 days are. Again, you don't have to memorize it. I just want to show you this again. The letter John wrote here was written in 95 AD. So all the persecutions come after 90 AD. The Neronian persecutions were in the 65s. So you go after this and you end up with 10 until Christian religion becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Just real briefly, I'm not going to go through a lot of this, but real bullet point fast. These are the 10. There was one under Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, Maximin, Decius, Valerian, and the last one is Diocletian, and notice where it ends somewhere in 305, generally speaking. By 325, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. But in these periods of time, you had the Caesars putting out edicts of persecute the Christians, and it was bad. You want to think about ISIS? That's how Rome became with Christians. They, they stuck them on poles, they impaled them on poles in the arenas, in Nero's gardens, even starting with Nero, put tar on them, and lit them on fire. That's exactly what ISIS does, right? Beheaded Christians, they put them in the arena, tie them to poles, let lions and tigers come out and eat them alive in front of masses and masses of people. And they didn't just do it in a Roman Colosseum, they did it all over the Roman provinces. Sometimes to torture them, they pull out their fingernails. They lit them on fire. They did all kinds of brutal things to them. Just blood was everywhere during this period of time. It was horrible. Let me make a note to you about an individual, Polycarp. You might have heard the story of Polycarp. I think I have a statue of him. Polycarp was the pastor of Smyrna right after John wrote this letter. And so he would have been there through a lot of the persecutions. And eventually at age 86, on February 23rd, uh, I think 155 A.D., he was martyred. So we actually, in Polycarp's testimony that someone wrote for him, we actually had what happened in the interchange with the Smyrna proconsul during that time. Again, he's 86 years old. He's been pastoring that church since he was a little guy. When he was a little guy, he was at the feet of John. He was one of John's disciples. So Polycarp is John's disciple, and that's the connection you want to see with John. So 
Smyrna became the church that he pastored. Well, anyway, at 86, they put Polycarp to the test, and we have a translation of the interaction. This is what happened. I want you to hear it. It's very fascinating. This is the translation that says this, but when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear the oath and I will release thee, revile the Christ, Polycarp. Polycarp said, 86 years have I been his servant and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Continues on, the proconsul says, I have wild beasts here and I will throw thee to them. Except thou repent. But he said, Polycarp, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us. But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness or inappropriateness to righteousness. And he said to him again, this is the proconsul, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire if thou despisest the wild beast unless thou repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threaten that fire which burneth for a season, and after a while is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Come, do what thou wilt. Whoa. Do you know what happened after that? The proconsul of Smyrna turned Polycarp over to a wild mob made up of Jews and Roman citizens. And they were going crazy. The mob took him, and they went to get hammer and nails because they were going to burn him at the stake, but they wanted wanted to nail him to that stake so he couldn't flinch and move. And so they brought hammers and nails with them, and Polycarp stopped them. And he says, you don't need to do that. And I'm paraphrasing. You don't need to nail me to anything. I will stand here and take that fire. And so they built the pyre around Polycarp, And they lit it. And he didn't budge. But this was the recorded prayer in his mouth as he was being lit on fire. O Lord God Almighty, Father of the blessed and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I thank you for giving me this day and this hour that I may be numbered among your martyrs to share the cup of Jesus and to rise again to everlasting life. And then as he is about to say amen, the fires engulfed him and took him. That was the faithfulness of Polycarp, the pastor of Smyrna. That's what he was called to do. Amazing testimony. But this is, you, when you look at church history, this is littered through all of church history how these people took it. I remember reading this week about one guy, there's a father and a daughter, they were tied to a stake in the Roman Colosseum. And the little girl asked the father, they were Christians. Will it hurt when the animal eats me? And the father said, only for a short time. That's how it was. That's how it is around this world. That's what's coming. Last point, number five. Jesus promises two rewards in which one is active, the crown of life, and the other is passive. Exclusion from the second death is the idea. One is active, one is passive. Let me explain this in verse 10. Be faithful until death. Be willing to go all the way with me, even if I ask you to die for me. And here's the promise. And I will give you the crown or the Stephanus, not a diadem, but a Stephanus. It's a winner's crown, the crown of life. That is what's called an active reward. What do you mean? Well, an active reward means it's not a gift. The next reward, if you look in verse 11, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Avoidance of the second death, avoidance of eternal damnation and the lake of fire is a gift. It is given to all believers. It's a passive reward to those who accept Christ. So that's what I want you to understand, the difference between active and passive. Active rewards are earned. Passive rewards are given. And the way to interpret this, I have to get technical so you can understand what he's saying, because if you don't, you'll interpret this in a Calvinistic way. It says that he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That is, in technical terms, a lightotis, a lightotis. What do we mean by that? It's a literary device that John's employing to the seven churches, and here's the technical way of saying it. It's an affirmation of a fact by denying its opposite. We'll explain that. What do you mean? If I told you, hey, you know what? It's no small problem that you have. You would understand what I'm saying. You would understand that, oh, I have a big problem is what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The lactotes that John is using, the term overcomer means those who have victory. It's not a position or status. It's those who overcome, those who are victorious, those who are conquering. What he's trying to say is this, the point. The believer who has victory in persecution has far more awaiting him than just the mere escape from the lake of fire, if that makes sense. You're getting more than just avoiding hell by being persecuted. I'm going to give you a reward. That's the lactotes that John's employing. He'll actually use the lactotes in, in all seven churches. That he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. You're getting more than just avoidance of things. You're getting something positive. And the positive thing is the crown of life. Ah, crown of life. What does that mean? It means this, and, and this is the best way I can explain it, because we don't have a lot of details, that in the kingdom, in, for all eternity, those believers who willingly accept the persecution and not practice the sin of silence, get out there, stand for truth, get persecuted for it, will experience eternality to its fullest in the abundant life that Jesus promised. Now, you can experience some of the abundant life here, but you'll experience the abundant life, the true life, in the next life, in the kingdom age. But some believers who have the crown of life will experience at a far greater level. And that's the best I can do to explain that. But it's definitely worth it if Jesus says, this is very important that you get this, that you stand up for whatever I'm calling you to do. And, and here's the deal. Here's where it's going to come to you. You can't control the things that automatically come to you. But a lot of the, like I said, the persecution that you're going to accept is your call. It's going to be your call. Whether you stand up at work, whether you stand up to the people in your family, whether you stand up to your neighbors or whatever it is, and you speak the truth in love, that's your call. Because you can choose the option of not saying anything. And nothing will happen to you here on the earth. Your life will be comfortable. But don't expect the crown of life. The crown of life is only given to those who take the risk. Who keep moving. Who keep going. Who keep pressing forward through all the pain. Who embrace the pain. Who really, really believe when Jesus said, you need to die to self. 
And in dying to yourself, you will live. Embrace the cross. Die today. That's a hard one. Those who die get the crown of life. Give me an illustration of this. And it's hard to put this all into to words because we're dealing with very, very deep things. But to understand this risk, it's about how much you're willing to go forward, how much you're willing to go up the trail, so to speak. There was a couple that wanted to go and look at this great waterfall. But to get to it, you have to hike up. And it's a waterfall somewhere in the Blue Mountains of Georgia, and you have to hike up there a ways, and it's real beautiful when you get to see it. But you have to hike up several miles to get to it. Well, this couple got out of their car, and they're going to make up the hike to the top of the falls. And so they got out of their car, and instantly when they first went a few feet, they noticed a small river and a, a puddle of water or a pool of water, whatever you want to call it, and people were just standing there. And the couple realized, oh, that's as far as they're going to go. They're just going here. They weren't going up the hill because they didn't want to go up. It's too hard. It's too much of an incline. So they decided to stay and observe the river. Okay? Well, they determined to go. They wanted to go see the falls. So they went up, and they went up about a half mile. And at that half mile, you can see more of an outlook, more of a kind of a scenic view, and you can see the river coming from the from the water, and it's real beautiful. It's kind of a lookout point type of thing, and uh, it's nice. And they could have stopped there, and a lot of people did. They weren't going any further. They, they were fine stopping right there at this lookout point. But this couple said, no, nah, no, nah, we, we want to go up more. We want to see more of this. So they started climbing, and it got steeper and steeper, and they went about 300 yards up more. They finally got there, and at this place, they were located across a bridge, and the bridge is looking right into the falls. About, and the falls are about 30 feet. It's a beautiful picture. People are taking pictures, but only a few people were there, only a handful of people, not compared to like the bottom where a lot of people were. But only a few people were there on this bridge taking a picture of this waterfall that was only 30 feet away. But they decided, you know what? We're going to go even further. We're going to go to the top of the mountain. So they pushed forward. And it got steeper. And at this point, their lungs were hurting. They're gasping for air. Their legs are getting wobbly and becoming like jello, pushing themselves up that, that cliff. But they finally got there. And they were at the peak of the mountain, top of the mountain. They could see where the, the falls were going. They could see the view and the landscape. And there's only a handful of people there. But when they got there, they said, it's worth it. I'm glad we pushed through, they said, and got to see this scene. Because if we would have stayed on the bottom, yeah, it was nice, but it wasn't like this. That's a picture of the crown of life. It's whether or not you want to push forward. You want to go deeper. Because if you go deeper, you will have to die. You will have to die to self, give up all the crutches, and feel pain, but it's worth it. Because when you get there, you'll be set free. You'll truly feel what the abundant life is like. And you don't want to miss that. I pray you keep climbing your mountain. 
and get to that top, okay? Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.